In the school for good mothers, Frida Liu had a very bad day. After receiving a phone call from the police that her child was in their custody, Frida must explain why she left her 18-month-old baby home alone for two hours. Finding herself in a fight for her child's life, Frida is court-ordered to spend one year in a highly guarded rehab facility to learn how to become a good mother. We speak to New York Times best-selling author Jessamine Chan about the inspiration behind this heart-wrenching novel. Let us explore the ethics and morality of motherhood in the next episode of the Vulgar Geniuses Podcast. Are you currently looking for a bookstore that has a great selection of books? Well, Kizzy's Books and More is that bookstore. Visit www.kizzy'sbooksandmore.com to purchase your next book for our book club. Use coupon code VULGARGENIUS to receive 10% off the subtotal of your first order. <laughs> What's up, everybody? My name is Denny. And I'm Veronica. And this is another episode of the Vulgar Geniuses podcast. We have a very special show today. Yes, we're starting 2022 with a very, 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 very good book. This is the book that has made me cry, like, in my entire life. Your whole life? My whole life. My whole 34? Four. 34 years that I'm alive in this world. <laughs> this is the most that I've cried. Well, it was worth every drop because, man, The School of Good Mothers by Jessamine Chan put us through the ringer. <laughs> and we are joined none other by the wonderful author of that book. Welcome to the show, Jessamine. How are you today? Hi, nice to meet you. So um, before we get into all of our, our questions about the School of Good, for Good Mothers, we want you just to give the people who might not have had a chance, because as we're talking to you today, your baby is a week old. So crazy, because ha- so after my human baby was a week old, I think I was still in the hospital because I had, I, be- I think I think we were still trapped there at that point. So um, the the birth of my book baby was a much longer gestation, but a, a much uh, smoother birth. <laughs> but we are so glad to have it out in the world now. Um, if you haven't had a chance to go pick it up, we highly recommend it that you go and rush to your local bookstore and pick up uh, this book because it will rock your world. It's something like we've we've never read before. Um, so for those who don't know, will you? Give us a a quick synopsis of what your book is about. Well, The School for Good Mothers is about a Chinese-American single mom named Frida Liu who loses custody of her toddler daughter, Harriet, after having one very bad day. And she gets sent to an imaginary government-run reform school where she's re-educated with mothers from all over the county. And I like to describe it as kind of like 1984, but for moms. Oh yeah. That's a good description right there. (laughs) So um, before we get into the question, what we really want to know is what was it like, because you work for Publishers Weekly. So what was it like to now have, be on the other end 
of that process of what people submitting their works in and getting it reviewed and everything? What was, what has this whole journey within this last week or within the time period of your book being purchased been like? Well, we sold the book in November, 2019. So in the before times, so it was actually originally scheduled for summer 2021. So it got um, my editor changed during that time and um, Dawn Davis went on to to run Bon Appetit and I'm now working with the wonderful Mary Sue Rucci. So I've, I've been very lucky to have two powerhouse editors and it got moved to January 2022 and it's been really fascinating to see how it works from the other side of things because I always, I mean, in those three years at, at Publishers Weekly, I, I got to see what is involved in a book launch but to have, and I knew that tons of people work on it, like that there's a whole team behind each book and each launch is a whole operation, but it's really incredible to see those forces and talents and all that work marshaled on, on behalf of my work. Are you still with Publishers Weekly or have you? No, I, I, I claim them, um, even though I, 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 uh, I claim them still um, in my bio because it was my favorite job ever and I, I love them so much, but I actually have not worked there for, for a number of years. I left in 2014, so it's been a while, but once you work at PW, you're kind of always part of the family. That, that's good because then you know that you got really good people working for that company. Yeah, It's always nice to hear from authors that they you know, that they transitioned from some somewhere that they kind of like liked working because mm-hmm. they were like, we had to write because like our old job sucked. <laughs> no, like, it was a, it was a really wonderful job. I mean, it was very unusual because it was basically like like being with like an amazing, warm, kind team of like intense nerds. It was like the the, the nerdiest the yes it was the nerdiest so what I've told you earlier was not a lie like I I've like bawled for probably like three-fourths of this book um and in the beginning I told Veronica this is really hard for me to do if I was given this book in 2019 or no 2020 I don't think I would have finished this book but now that I am stronger <laughs> and, I, and I came out of the other end, um, I am very, very happy to read your book. And it's, it's really, really good. So I felt that this was a love letter to my old postpartum depressed self. And you made the reader very aware that the pressures of being a good working mother was extremely hard. I felt like I was back to the days when I felt so desperate for help, but not realizing how to ask for it. Frida getting herself some coffee and following up on some work was her cry for help. It was a big release that, you know, I also felt like she needed. And I got that and I felt that this novel made me examine my own choices for the last, for, you know, for two years ago and how could have a better help, like, my child and myself you being as a mother yourself um was it cathartic to put all of these feelings and realities of motherhood in this baby book novel that you have 
I do think it was cathartic in a lot of ways because I, I had a home for all the difficult feelings or when I felt resentful or bored or frustrated. Um, but a lot of times the, the more complicated feelings were not necessarily about my child, but were about the culture. So, so I also channeled, channeled those feelings into the book, but I, I do feel like the harder parts of parenting, I, I was very conscious that if I was having a really difficult moment, I should pay attention because it was amazing material. So, so whatever suffering I was going through, like there was, um, a time when you're, so if you're, if your child is two, I don't think you've experienced this quite yet, but there was a time when, or my, my daughter, when we were living in West Philly, which is a very um, progressive neighborhood with very involved parents. And I, she got in, she had this habit of um, planting herself on the sidewalk and refusing to get up and like, wouldn't get in her stroller. She would just she did what I call in the book, the protester resisting arrest move, where she just, she just like makes her body like a bag of cement and like can't be moved. And so I remember like watching the neighborhood pass by watching me struggling with my child and feeling like all this shame. And I was thinking, I must remember this feeling. <laughs> I have to write this into the book. So, so it was cathartic in the sense that I, I had, I had somewhere for those feelings to go. Cause I, I mean, motherhood can sometimes be a quite lonely experience because it, it, there's no room in our culture to feel anything except for joy and gratitude. So, I mean, I have my group text with my mom friends, but in the past moms didn't necessarily have that outlet of like secretive chatter. So, so I, I tried to, I tried to build some of, um, some of the, the more challenging parts of parenting into the book, but it, I, I hope that I also captured like some of what's joyful too. Yeah, I think absolutely. Like you put words into feelings that I think, especially like for me, like an Asian American, you know, mother, there's like this side of like being Asian and then like what it's expected, like you said, when you're outside of the world, people are judging. So it's just like that constant battle of like, what do you do and how do you navigate these these things? And just just the, you know, seeing stuff in the book, like being for, for me to read those things help me like kind of like normalize the stuff that I'm going through I'm like oh this is not weird I'm not going crazy it's it's not like your experience like it's not it's not just by itself and I think it really would help a lot of women especially you know now that we've had the the pandemonium like nobody can really see a lot of people mm-hmm. except you like texting and like maybe FaceTime sometimes um so I think this book would really go a long way, Jessamine. And we're very happy that we're one of the few people that get to read it first. <laughs> I'm really thrilled that the book made you feel seen. I think one thing that ended up being written into the book that wasn't there necessarily in the first draft was I went through a really hard time um, as we decided to have to try for a baby, my, um, my doctor took me off my antidepressants because I, 
you're not supposed to take them when you are trying to get pregnant. And so what resulted, what happened was this like major mental health crisis. And so the, the suffering of depression was like very fresh in my mind when I returned to the book. So I, I wrote a lot of that experience of depression and mental health struggles into the book. And I, I, I hope that there's um, more opportunity for conversation about that because I think maternal mental health is definitely on everyone's minds after two years of the pandemic, but there's just so little relief for moms. It's, it's more just like suffering in silence. So I, I hope that it won't always be that way. Outside of your personal experiences that you, you know, use as inspiration to tie into this book, uh, what other inspiration did you use to come up? Cause this is a, this is an elaborate story. This is nothing like I've read before. So what did you draw upon to create this story? Well, I have had an unusual experience with the, the way this book began, because I am a really, really slow writer. And so I, this has never happened to me before, but the, the book really grew out of one really good writing day. So I wrote for about six hours and basically had like a roadmap for what the book would become, except I didn't necessarily know it was the beginning of a novel. And I didn't dare say like, I'm going to turn this into a book, but I think where that good writing day came from was that I was in my mid thirties and I was trying to decide whether or not to have a baby. I was deeply conflicted and super, super anxious about it. I didn't necessarily feel ready, but it felt like it was time biological clockwise to choose one path or the other. So I would have happily waited until I was 50 to try to have a baby and like gotten a bunch of books done and um, been at a more stable point career-wise. But that was, we we definitely had to make a choice to like leap into the unknown of of, uh, deciding to have a kid. So motherhood was just on my mind. And I think one of the other threads of inspiration was that a few months before the really good writing day, I'd read the article, Where Is Your Mother? by Rachel Aviv in The New Yorker. And I didn't read that thinking, oh, this is uh, the spark for, for my project. I, I just read it feeling this overwhelming rage on the mom's behalf. And it was about, um, I think the mom, I don't remember her her exact ethnic background, but I, I think the, the mom was Middle Eastern and she was, um, she is a single mom who left her toddler son at home. And then after that day, never got him back. Like she lost, she had termination of parental rights. She was barred from seeing him. And the story was hugely tragic. And the way that the, the representatives of the government talked to that mom just felt a little like science fiction. It felt really chilly and clinical and it talked about parenting and motherhood in these almost scientific terms as if you could measure a mom's love or devotion or you can measure whether or not you could trust her. So I think it's hard to put into words how exactly the imagination works because I I didn't go into it with a a plan. Like today I'm going to sit down and start a book. It was more like those were the things floating around my mind <laughs> around around the time that that the creative spark happened. So I so I had the the draft from that day and 
what that day contained the Frida and Harry story, the, the school, the women in pink lab coats, the Gus and Susanna story. So I, it was the, the kind of writing day I've dreamed of having all my life. So that, that's how the book developed, but I started it back in um, early 2014. So it was a project that began in a very different political reality. Mm. So uh, motherhood is this idea that it is an internal instinct that's assigned to cisgender women that should lead them knowing everything about being a quote unquote good mother from the moment that the baby pops out. And this falsehood comes with this umbrella of grace. When we see stories such as Frida's on the news, I'm sure many of us ask questions that start with, why didn't they do just X, Y, Z? Never pausing and reframing our questions to first see what was the state that the mother was in for this to happen? What are your, what are your thoughts on how we view this I know you touched a, a little bit on mental health but what are your thoughts when you see these stories that pop up in the news about these moment moments that are happening with these parents who you know for whatever reason you know left their child in the car or you know just had a, a day where they just couldn't be with that child and got turned in by the police I definitely have paid much closer attention to these stories in the last few years, like when I was writing the book. But I I think what surprised me once I started reading about it was how prevalent the stories are. And also, as everyone knows, it, it's uh, the dragnet of surveillance and who gets caught and who gets punished is, is predominantly Black and brown women. Um, and it, it definitely skews toward women from um, more impoverished backgrounds or like a whole different um, socioeconomic class. And so um, it, I, I'm, I'm phrasing this in a clumsy way, but I'm, I'm just saying the, the way that the, the punishments are meted out seems so dependent on race and class. Mm-hmm. And I think that I, I wanted in the book to draw readers attention to the question of who's doing the judging and whether it's possible for there to be any objective set of standards. Um, I think what I noticed in the reading that I did for the book was that if it, what I read was that if there is a case where a child dies, like when like a CPS is investigating and they know that the family is problematic and they return the child and then the child dies, that tends to make, that tends to have an impact in all the other cases. Mm-hmm. So that they, they tend to, I think the words used are to err on the side of caution. And so the more innocuous offenses then um, get handled very differently because there is the, the most extreme case. And so, when I read about the stories in the news, I, I think my, my heart really goes out to those, to the, the parents, because we so rarely hear about the circumstances that led, like you said, the circumstances that led them to um, that situation. And as I've been talking about the book, it's, it's really struck me how many of these problems could be solved by affordable childcare, because there's, there's so much of the um, 
more problematic decision making that is just a out of desperation. Right. We had a conversation earlier today um, talking about your book about, you know, just asking ourselves the question of what would we do if we were that neighbor and we, mm-hmm. we heard a child crying. And, you know, one of the things that I, I thought about was, you know, the relationship of the neighbor you know, that's one of the things that we are privy to. And I kind of get a feeling, though, that that Frida and her neighbors probably weren't on a good talking terms, good relationship. Uh-huh. Um, but it does definitely think about, like, what is that established relationship that you have with your neighbors and what are you willing to do for them? Because some would probably go over and try to get into the house and wait for the parent to come back rather than immediately reporting them to the news, try to figure out, or to the police to figure out what's going on where you have other people who will be quick to call the police. And, you know, you, you kind of wrestle with what would you do when you're in that situation? And I think most of the time we're not given people, we're not, we're not giving people that opportunity to have those moments that I think everyone is, I guess, naturally in their mind that they've been told, if you see trouble, you call the police and, and rather than, you know, seeing if there's some way that you can help out. But I know that this is a multifaceted issue that can't just be answered in one question, but this book definitely brings that conversation up for you to like wrestle with. And so in this book, not only do you dive into the issue of motherhood and what happens when one is met with postpartum depression while also having a marriage fall apart, but you also chose to deal with the issues of race, which you touched on earlier, and the prison reform system. When you sat down to write this novel, do you, um, did you know all of the parts that would be included into this into the story? Or like you said earlier, it just was something that was floating around. Was there anything else when you were writing within the story that just came to you? The, to- the story told you what it wanted to be? Or did you have like, okay, I now have the framework of this story, but I want to touch base on race and, and reform? I First of all, I have to apologize if my... Um if you hear child crying in the background, or I can hear it in my headphones. It's all very real over here. So, you know, I wish I could tell you that I sat down with a, with a plan that I was going to, to talk about those big issues and concerns. Um, I was definitely writing from a very personal place, like just trying to, to grapple with it, with these issues. I think like I was definitely really nervous um, writing any observations about race into the book because it. Um, I wanted Frida to really acknowledge her outsider perspective and the fact that that her class background, in a lot of ways, made her so different from the the women in the school and 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 so that I, I wanted one thing that I think happened in the drafts was that I I really tried to have Frida reckon with her privilege and um, her privilege as an Asian, her privilege um, growing up upper middle class and and all the ways that that shaped her life and all the choices that that allowed her. But um, I definitely wanted, um, I, I wanted her to 
to also reckon with the, the issue of race within the school. So I, I tried to to put I tried to put the characters under pressure in, in different ways so that they had to to confront that. Yeah, and I think you really did a good job putting pressure on every single one of them because you felt it. Like mm-hmm. you felt it through the novel. Like I think it takes a special writer to be able to convey those those feelings and intentions in their head and to, for it to be able to cross into the reader because you sometimes like I would feel very claustrophobic reading like one scenario sometimes you are pissed sometimes <laughs> you are mad but there are like tender moments in the book that made you go through this like roller coaster of a ride so I that was that was props to you and I think that was very so much you know, that's very intentional and what I told Veronica earlier is I've been waiting for an Asian American woman to write this book mm-hmm. and to write this way. Mm-hmm. And I think I've met her today. Well, thank you. That's totally, that's totally like dream come true to hear that. Um, I think, and in, in a lot of ways, I mean, it, the book took years and years to finish. And I think one thing that kept me motivated was the idea of that maybe putting a character like this, like uh, putting a really messy, complicated, um, not not easily likable Asian American heroine into the world in a pretty complicated story would hopefully in some small way help move the conversation forward. And I, in a lot of ways, she's the character that I've always wanted to read on the page. And I read, I read a lot. I try to read widely. I read diverse authors, but I, I very rarely see myself reflected back on the page. And so I'm always imagining myself into um, very different experiences of, of race in the world. And so I, I, I wondered what it would be like to write someone who who looks like me and is from my background into um, a story that's about society. Raising an an Asian kid in American standards has always been an evolving process. So Miss Curry from your novel even said that American mothers should inspire feelings of hope and not regret. Just so you know, these people in these lab coats, like I want to just like, kill them sometimes not all the time um (laughs) but um it is hard to inspire feelings of hope when we cannot escape our immigrant and marginalized realities that we have in this country our parents had to work hard to be recognized to seen as reliable citizens they had no time to talk about their feelings and our experience sometimes even joy Uh, parental guilt worked for them because it's the unfailing resource for the overworked parent um and that generational trauma exists in our being that can shape how we raise our own children. Um, how do you think we can help break that cycle and allow ourselves some grace in rearing this next generations of um, Asian Americans? You guys ask really good questions. So let me just <laughs> let me just say that first. So thank you for asking um, amazing questions and giving uh, giving me uh, space to to talk about these topics. That is a great question. I certainly am trying to raise my daughter to experience more joy and feel more comfortable with her feelings. I mean, I I hope to raise a child who feels comfortable in her own skin. I mean, I think part of 
what people have related to with the character of Frida is that she's so uncomfortable in her skin is just is yearning to belong and yearning to be loved. And I think that is a universal feeling in a lot of ways. But I, I am just uh, definitely struggling to try to, to raise like a hopeful, joyful child, because it's not super easy during the pandemic, because we used to have a really vibrant social life in West Philly and just be able to text someone and just come over in two minutes. And we were really social and she had so many friends. And so it's been, it's been hard to, to keep that up. But um, I mean, certainly I've been in therapy for most of my adult life and that's uh, that has been um, definitely challenging in a lot of ways because there's a lot of stigma against um there's a lot of stigma for children of immigrants and immigrants in general and Asians in general to, to, for acknowledging mental health struggles or seeking treatment for it because therapy is very American. And so I guess I, I feel like it's something that I, I should talk about because there's just not, there's, just not as much space in our culture for dealing with that. I mean, Asian culture to make a very broad generalization is much more closed off in terms of like, expressing emotions or dealing with conflict in that way. And so there's, there's just a lot of, um, in my experience of Chinese culture, there's been a lot of uh, swallowing feelings. <laughs> and so, so I'm, I guess I'm trying to to not replicate that with my daughter and just give her space to to be herself I mean I would I would love to have her have space to be herself around more people once once she's fully she just got her first vaccine dose a few days ago and so we're hope I'm I'm saying a wish for for you for the under five vaccine it's a, a long wait um but yeah, I think it's a, an evolving constant question of, of how to make sure my child feels loved and affirmed. But I, I mean, I have the, the luxury of spending a lot of time thinking about it. I'm not sure, I'm, I'm not sure my parents had any time to think about that. They, they loved us, they love us, present tense, and they worked incredibly hard for us, but they, I mean, I can't even, I feel like I am a pretty hardworking person. There is no way in my life I will ever be able to work as hard as my mom and dad did in terms of like the sheer amount of hours and sacrifice and all the pressure they were under. So I can't actually imagine what it's like to pick, to start a family in a whole new country, like without any existing supports so it's it's uh, a lot of different and things going to the parenting decisions but um you know the the book that talks about all of this in a much more um lucid way than I can is um the the essay collection minor feelings by Kathy Park Hong because that really captures a lot of the um the inner conflict and the the guilt that you feel toward um like all your parents did for you, but then also your own struggles as a Asian American woman, like having depression, like wanting to be an artist, like it, it captured so, so much of um, my experience that it, like, that's the book that made me feel seen more than any other. 
when when we when we first we we read that too and we talked about that here too like multiple times i always go back to that um i think yeah it it felt like one of the descriptions of that book to me was like i felt like she was holding like a knife in my neck and be like this is what we are dealing with like wake up and accept it but yeah like same with you because like my parents are from the philippines they like uprooted our whole family and just started here but you know it's always my my mom that started everything my in-laws are chinese they're from hong kong so that struggle that hustle i would never understand and i have much respect for for all of them but yes they were they didn't have even my father-in-law told me like the last time they were here then they didn't have enough time to you know feel anything because mm. he was like day in day out they had they had to make it happen and he left it at that and he had to excuse himself but i understood what that meant yeah the the pressure is just relentless and the fact that there's the immigrant families are starting up without any safety net and there is, there is no like generational wealth cushion that and also my my parents helped my this is when the all the immigration policies were pretty different in the 80s and early 90s i mean they helped the entire family um settle in the US. And I think the Trump administration re referred to it, like it's, it has some horrible term like chain migration, but it was actually just like uniting a family. And so there, the way an immigrant family bands together just to survive, it's hard to explain that um, in an American culture, which is very much just focused on the nuclear family. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, I think about that often, especially now in our in our climate, our economic climate, where it is, it would be so much more beneficial if we just all live with our families, like, you know, just everybody, rather than you know, like you have your children and then your children live and they go off and have their own house. Everybody has their own space, and it's very different when you when you see that collective come in and knowing that most times that they're doing it because they need to but sometimes also it's just a cultural thing that you really don't leave un until you get married and sometimes you get married and brought back into the house so you know it, it is definitely one of those things that i often think about in regards to how we choose to operate here in in this country um so the lives of the women of color depicted in your book are very realistic and Frida was very worried that Harriet would not know her grandparents, their language and culture when sent to live with her ex-husband and his mistress. What do you say to people about the validity of Frida's worry of her daughter losing that link to her maternal family line and history because they feel that she would be better off regardless of the race of the parents you know in the original new yorker piece that sparked some of my imagination for the book that one was much more about um a child being taken out of his parents culture and then put into a white american family so it that one that story was much more about the foster family taking over and the the child's loss of his original culture and like he wasn't going to speak arabic and um there was it, 
I think an effort was made to put him with an Arabic speaking family, but it, it was basically like once he was taken away from his mom, he lost his heritage too. So that was um, certainly on my mind in developing Frida's story. But it's it's something that's just on my mind constantly because I have I totally lost my my uh, stamina for trying to speak Mandarin to my daughter once the pandemic started. Like once the pandemic started, I just got tired, as, as a lot of people did. And so before that, I was trying to speak a little bit of Mandarin to her every day, and then I I think like I just didn't have any energy for any extra stuff. So. So my daughter now goes to um, a Mandarin immersion Montessori and like we move back to my hometown and live near my my parents so that and I I mean I feel bad that I've kind of given them the job of like speaking Mandarin to her a lot but I'm there's just a lot of ways in which like one's family's mother tongue is the main way of carrying on the culture because I mean, you do lose a lot of the cultural traditions from one generation to the next, but the the language is like the thing that you're supposed to carry on. So, so I I do think um, the the question of whether Harriet would be would be able to to like hang on to the the Chinese side of her like with Gus and Susanna as a as a valid one because it, it, there would be some erasure in that in that way unless unless Gus and Susanna took it upon themselves to learn Mandarin and like, I like they are the kind of characters who probably would do that. So it's not impossible, but um, I, I did envision that subplot being a question of like erasing her, her cultural history. You really think Susanna would be like, <laughs> we need to put her in Mandarin classes. I, I envision Gus and Susanna as being ultra do-gooders. And so and and like wa- like wannabe woke people, so I feel <laughs> like I feel like they they might they might try it. Man, I don't know. She has so much faith in this woman. Man. Props to you, because I was I have a lot of feelings about her. But you know, for the people that haven't read this novel, they need to discover it for themselves. Because yeah. but they were fun characters to write because they were a way for me to. Um, to expunge all my feelings about like that aspect of American culture because they when people would um when other moms would say something really annoying to me about like how verbal my child was or like like how I like there was some reference um on another West Philly mom made to like how she was she she read some book that you have to speak like some some crazy number of words per day to to have your child be like kindergarten ready at five and I thought instead of saying oh my god that's crazy I just took note of it and then wrote it into the book so that's that's how I dealt with um some of the the cultural pressure I was feeling if if someone said something crazy I'm like hmm I could add that to Susanna (laughs) every time you wrote about her every time she appeared in a novel it's just like I think for me she's one of the most clear characters that I have envisioned in my head of like what she looks like every time she pops up on the screen and you know she's hoping to meet with her child rather than the mistress Mm-hmm. And to see her come, I just feel like she has on like this sweater. And she probably looks great. 
Yes. Her hair in like this pretty but messy bun and just like, hi, you know, just like annoying, always popping up person. Um, yeah, I, she, she, her character did exactly what you wrote her to, to be. <laughs> but I think what was partly fun was that they are also both really nice. Like they're both very good parents to Harriet and they're, they're very forgiving of Frida and, they never, they never try to, to punish her. So I wanted to, them to be kind of, com- they, I didn't want them to be just villains because I, I wanted them to be kind of complicated in that way, that they're, they're totally negating Frida's feelings all the time, but yet they're, they're kind of suffocating her with their good intentions. Wow, that just made a whole U-turn in my head of how I, perceive those characters to play out in my in my head um because at one point in the book I'm just like I'm just gonna know that these parents are in on this whole like you know reform thing that you know that there's something more than we're not not seeing but then you know later on we find out what the deal is but uh, yeah, yeah and I, I think it was for me in the end that when I'm like oh like okay like I think this character is really mean well, but yeah, they are suffocating. Really, really suffocating. <laughs> and I'm like, I need air. Send help. So the Family and Medical Leave Act only allows 12 weeks of paid paternal leave. We consider ourselves as the number one country in the world, but we are the worst when considering the health and well-being of, you know, the main unit of our society, which is our family and, you know, our mothers and our fathers. What do you think can be beneficial if these legislations are to be changed? And do you think these change can be the start on how we look at mothers and their supposed responsibilities? I should preface by saying I'm just a fiction writer, not a um, policy person. And so I actually didn't follow the, the news that much about the the Family Leave Act because I just got so angry whenever I would read about it. And I, I think I was very busy with um, book promotions uh, duties. And so I knew that if I started reading about it, I would just feel like my blood boiling and then not be able to concentrate. But I, I just think this would be a completely different country if affordable childcare was accessible and if there was um, universal pre-K, if there was health insurance. Um, even just something like the amount of money I just spent last night buying children's K and 95 masks and all the, the stuff that they're supposed to have for the pandemic, which is ungodly expensive and out of reach for most people. Um, I, it's just so crazy how little government support there is. I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine what would be needed because it's kind of everything that's needed like there kind of is no safety net for parents and I mean I had the luxury of of um I mean I was just doing freelance work at the time when I had my baby but I had a c-section and if if I needed to go back to work at four weeks I was not walking then like I I could barely use the stairs and um I think at five weeks was when I walked around the block without sobbing. I mean, my body was just 
completely destroyed. And so it's, it's just frustrating to live in a society where moms are on a pedestal and exalted and, um, turned into these mythical figures but then there's there's no actual support for for being a parent in America and without um family resources it it feels like incredible like the odds are uh, really stacked against you mm-hmm. yeah and and I think I I feel that I think a lot too, because I work in healthcare. It's not a secret in this podcast that I am a nurse. Thank you so for all of pandemic. your work during the hardest time ever. Thank you. Um, I can't do it alone. I do it with a lot of people there that is also, you know, we are on our last thread, if I'm, if I'm being honest. Um, but when after giving birth, I was pumping when the pandemic started. So I was like, you know, the paranoia, the safety Uh and everything like that. I'm like, what are we doing? Like, why are we subjected to this kind of like indecency almost? Like Mm. nobody gives us anything and yet we are expected to give everything out. Like, I'm like, you know, at work, I like, I am a caregiver, so I give out. And then when you come home, you're the main caretaker. So again, give out. So there's no break. Um, and I just feel for, like you said, for the people that won't be able to afford this, like K95 mask for these children or like the enough protection for all these, for the little ones, because, you know, this, the odds are against us. And it's, it's really like rattling to think that a, a society as big as this can function with a disregard to to women or the the fact that the binax tests are $25 a box I mean the like (laughs) you see how the pandemic's being handled in other countries like in South Korea for example um or in England I I I, apparently the the testing is much more affordable in in Europe and in Asia and it's just I it's just really mind-boggling how much uh, capitalism has dictated how the whole pandemic response has happened I mean I think I I've just been getting um like extra sad about it lately because my daughter just turned five and the pandemic began like right after she turned three so I don't think she actually remembers anything before this um I think maybe she did at some point but I think her her earliest memories are now going to be of of quarantine and and that's that's quite heavy to think about yeah that makes me think like a Denny's son you know he was born in 2019 so he was only what like four months Mm -hmm. four five six months when the pandemic started so you know like he is a pandemic baby he doesn't know anything but having masks on your face and knowing like you can't pick up everything off the ground and always having to wash your hands bubble and it's a whole nother mentality and framework that you have in your head of like how how daily life goes it's it's a lot but you know that most of it is just because of people's greed that we are where we are right now um but that's a whole nother podcast (laughs) you know I I decided not to write the pandemic into my novel because I I decided to just 
I, I didn't write the Trump administration into my book just because I, I didn't want it to live in my book, even because we were living with it every day. And I just didn't want it to be like eternally in my book, too. And I decided not to reference the pandemic just because it felt like there was it felt like things were unfolding in real time in a way that my fiction could never catch up with. And it felt like too big to reference in a couple sentences. So so if there's if there's no masks and no pandemic, that is why. Yeah, and it doesn't, I appreciate it not being there. And to me, it didn't need it to be there because you've, you've tackled everything that needed to be said and done without even mentioning that monster. So I think, I think you did it without it. Yeah, because in a sense, all of the things that's mentioned in this book is already our pandemic that we're <laughs> that we're living with, right? We're, this is just a new one that we that everybody is forcing themselves to look at every single day. Um, so what I one thing I wanted to know, I'm just curious, is to like, have you ever been met with any criticism about the depiction of Frida being the victim within this story? So to be honest, I am incredibly grateful to everyone who's taken the time to read and post on Goodreads and Amazon, but I do not read those reviews myself because everyone I know has told me not to. So it is very possible there is a lot of criticism of Frida there, but I have, I have not done, I've not scrolled through all of it. So, so I even have my, my friends, Hillary and Diane screen all the, the newspaper and magazine reviews that come out so I like we're on text messages every day and so I just send them the new one I'm like okay is this one okay to look at so so I've I've been trying to sort of protect my own sanity a little bit because so so there there may be some very negative things written about Frida online I just have I I uh have been looking away I feel that I feel that yeah there, there's no need they can they everybody has opinions this is ours right here so we team Frida all the way <laughs> well thank you so much well I, I think I I think I knew like when you're writing about bad moms like people have really passionate opinions and so I knew that in the comments section of anything about a book that is satirizing motherhood or um talking about the the issues that the book wrestles with that that maybe it would not be good for my mental health to read all the reviews no doom scrolling through your reviews only only five stars and above oh thank you i, I mean there's enough doom scrolling through the <laughs> daily news <laughs> so so i i feel like i've gotten i've gotten plenty of of doom scrolling the last few weeks have been quite hard <laughs> Uh, the television rights uh, of your book have been bought by uh, Jessica Chastain. I think that's how you say her last name. Uh, per production company, Freckled Films. Uh, first, uh, congratulations. Thank you so much. Um, second, uh, can we be extras? No, just kidding. <laughs> you know, my my friends in West Philly, they they want their children to be to be extras. But the 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 problem is is that the way um, the way time works, um, their kids are going to be too old. <laughs> by then. Um, that's true. I'm like I thought about my son. I'm like, oh no, yep, too old. <laughs> we 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 need new ones. Do you have a vision of who would play Frida? 
Um, I I am not at, at liberty to discuss, but um, but I I I hope uh, folks will be happy. I'm just gonna leave that completely vague answer with you. Oh, we're 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 on board. We're on board. Um, because before all of this, we all you know we focus mostly on like people of color in our podcast Actually, which is an amazing thing to do this did not exist before yay yes yeah, so we only focus on books that are made by people of color and also we did television shows that are written or by people of color so when your show pops up we would do a podcast about it oh for sure Oh, for sure. We're, I love television. We're, so. We are so ready, so ready for it. And I hope you're involved. You don't have to answer this question. Oh, I, I can answer that one. So I'm, I'm involved as an executive producer. So I, I'm, thank you. I'm really excited. I'm, I'm mostly watching and learning um, and occasionally chiming in to explain like why such and such happened that way. But it's, I, I think what's very exciting about the TV project is that um, it's the potential to be a one-hour drama focused on an Asian American character and like to have um, a really great part for an Asian actress and to have to have the story told through an Asian lens is really exciting and um, the director Jude Wang is attached and so it's in, in a lot of ways it's uh, um, a, a really exciting uh, combo of of people have you ever thought that the school of good mothers would go this far like be a television show um there's certainly been a lot of time i think because we've been like alone for two years um (laughs) there's been a lot of time to to like do quiet dreaming i i think what's still so crazy to me is that it's like a physical book now and not a microsoft word document on my computer another your your guest robert jones and i were texting um earlier i i think he's the he's the reason that that you heard about my book early was because um he's been such a great supporter but i think he was asking me like has anything sunk in and ha- have i been really absorbing how the past week has gone and i i think partly i have but um it's it's still just surreal oh thank you we we just got <laughs> thank you so much we actually uh, just got an amazing uh, new york times review that came out today and i think i was mostly still sane last week but after the new york times review came out my brain has just melted into like a puddle like of of just feeling overjoyed and overwhelmed and I I sort of can't even believe it my my husband said the review feels like it was written by one of my closest friends like to to make me happy or something and I'm like no but it's it's the New York Times book critic saying these things um so I mean that that has really been like beyond my wildest dreams to like have to have such a prominent critic read my book with like so much care and, and and like attention to detail and like thinking about like to, to think about my book in like such a smart way and, and so that's been um something I was like completely terrified over of of like I mean when you're 
when you're getting ready to publish a book, you're like, oh my God, the reviews, how is this going to go? And so to see that has been um, so gratifying and exciting. And my my brain has just like stopped functioning today. So I, I, I definitely um, kept it together. And I, we, my husband was um, was just like, let's open the Prosecco. I'm like, no, 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 I have to tape a podcast. <laughs> I like cannot <laughs> drink Prosecco before the podcast. Um, I mean, but judgmental. We would appreciate if those. you had told us you would bring in some sparkling, we would have brought ours too. I I know. I wanted to be professional for you though, <laughs> but you know, I I definitely um I hoped that the that the book would speak to people. It's it's certainly um it's been really exciting to see the story touch people from like really different backgrounds in the sense that. I have heard from my my agent's stepdaughter, who's a college student who loved the book, and um, my mother in law loved the book. <laughs> so it's like it. There's it, it's been um, really remarkable to to have the story read and cared for by by people who are um, from really different backgrounds and different ages, and like that they they all found a way in to the story mm-hmm. because it. Um, it really came from from like a really personal inquiry in into a lot of these issues and like and a the book was a, a way to survive a really confusing time and like to deal with like the transition to being a mom and like really um I think really this was the first project where I felt like okay I have to turn this into a book because I have things to say and it it really took a, a lot of years of of life and gaining like the skill craft wise to feel like I have things to say and like I have the ability to say it now because I mean I'm publishing this book at 43 not at 28 mm-hmm. and I wish I could go back to my younger self and say it's going to be okay <laughs> and that the the book will be read by lots of people and it'll be worth these eight years of your life um it's just so hard with writing a book to, to know how it's going to go. You just have to do it. And then like six or eight years later, hope that it was worth it. I, I'm getting a little flaclumped here. <laughs> um, Thank you for getting verklempt on my behalf. I'm, I'm very happy for you. I'm happy for all of the people that we, that we talk to who, like you said, just do it and write the work and just put it out there. And you, never know what's going to happen especially when you're you're giving the world your art and you're hoping that somebody reads it and we hoping that everybody picks this up recently um last year almost a year ago we had uh writer Mateo Escarapur on our show and it's been a year since his book came out and he recently like released like this little video about the first nine words that came to him for his story and just like watching this reel of moments that took place of him being Jenna's book club pick for the month of February or January and um you know all of the moments that happened within this this past year and you know just watching him win and now here you are Jenna's book pick for the month of January and you know we hope that we get to see all of these wins continue to roll in um, even past the television show and just see where you go in this, on this journey. And, you know, I just want to just wish great things on your life. 
so that your younger self is just like feeling great on the inside of like, yes, we, we did it. Um, and I just was curious of like how rewarding was it to have that moment to share that moment with your parents and, and see her make that announcement. Oh my God. So, so many hours of logistics and planning went into making that tiny clip. Um, so we told my parents that my editor, Mary Sue Rucci was going to be on the today show and she was going to be talking about my book. And that's how we got them like into the kitchen, like all at the same time. And so my, I, so I told them, so I, I, the reason this happened was because I, I managed to keep the secret since last spring. So this was just a long time of secret keeping. And so I didn't tell my parents. And once my publishing team heard that I'd managed not to tell my parents, they're like, oh, you have to surprise them and do a reveal video. I'm like, guys, how am I going to do this? And so my sister was, was recruited to help get everyone up dressed ready and then the kitchen has never been that clean before like like all the all the kitchen stuff is moved out of the way so it's a very clean background because I warned them I'm like I'm gonna be filming this it might be posted on social media um because I mean my my family is incredibly private so after the video has been up and like now read with Jenna's Instagram has reposted and it's been seen by thousands of people. My parents are like, you can't post any more pictures of us like ever. <laughs> like they're very cute. So I'm glad that I'm glad that my cute parents can get their, their little moment, but I'm not allowed to do it again. But it was, <laughs> it was um really funny to sh share that video. Cause we, my husband edited the clip. So we just stopped with my dad saying, yay. And we don't see me explaining what this means. Cause, because there is a whole moment because I mean, they're not following book clubs and, and they have other things to do in their life and they're not like book world people. And so, so I had to I had explained like the sticker, the sticker on the cover is very important. This is what it means. And I, I don't think they I don't think they knew that the day, Today Show had a book club, so this was all news to them. And I had to explain like this is very good news. See, this is the very good news we had to show you. So I, I think they they were they were like Mary Sue is not coming on the show. I'm like no, it's a lie. It's a lie. We told you to, to get this video, and they I mean it was very early in the morning. Everyone had just woken up. It, it took a minute, and and then. And then my dad, like five minutes later, was saying like, oh, this is wonderful. It's a big deal. It took it took a, a few tries to explain the, the significance of it. But it, it is for my parents like it, it's what's hilarious is that I think for my parents, it's like I want a really big spelling bee or something because they're so they're proud in, a, in the way that parents would be for like your eight year old winning a spelling bee, except I'm in my 40s and it's, it's my book. But they, they have like that level of um, of uh, proud of your kid energy. It's it's all very Chinese. I, I felt that to the core. And I'm just like, when you said somebody had to get everybody together, I'm like, I, I already know how that, <laughs> how that goes. Like, I have that planned in my head. And then the kitchen situation, and I'm like, say no more. <laughs> But it was very. But you can you can imagine, right? The three generations of uh, of your family, like all sitting and paying attention at the same time. 
Um, and like, I had to get ready that morning too. And like, we had to get my daughter ready for school. And my husband hustled me out of the house. He's like, you can't miss the TV moment. You cannot be late for that. And it was like 745 here. And so it, I'm, I'm glad that it all paid off because like behind the scenes, it was just really kind of a mess. It's funny. Cause, um, when we, we interviewed Robert last uh, last year in early December and we did it live with our with our public library system so it was a really big deal of like having people in the chat room while we're having this conversation oh you did it live that's so complicated and so telling her in-laws and my mom they both did the same thing where it was kind of like after it was after it was filmed because they didn't watch it live uh, but after it was filmed you know her her in-laws watched it and my mom watched it live and after everything was said and done, every time we were like, okay, we have another interview, you know, later we got to do it. And both of them were like, okay, where we can watch it on YouTube. Like it's coming up again. It's like, no, it was just that, that one time. And my mom still asked me to this day, like, so you doing another thing with the library? I'm like, no, it was just that like one time special occasion. Like, that's why we did it. She's like, oh, and I swear, I know that after I tell her that we had an interview with you, she's going to ask me, so where can I watch it again? I'm like, oh, oh I have a, a funny story that's tangentially related. So um, I think to until last week to a lot of the other um, preschool parents, I'm just the mysteriously busy mom who's just never around for the (laughs) events. And so, cause I, I mean, I don't love talking about myself and it's all kind of embarrassing, but my, my husband was telling some of the other dads about my book launch. Cause it was just a couple, cause my daughter turned five right before the book launch and we managed to have an, um, a, a hopefully following COVID protocols outdoor birthday party in 28 degree weather in oh Chicago. Um, so that was, uh, hopefully my daughter will have memories of like that time we did my January birthday in the snow. Um, so be, a couple of days before that, my, my husband was telling a couple, two of the other preschool dads about my book and they Googled me and I, I really gained a lot of legitimacy after they Googled me. <laughs> and, um, and like, I suddenly became like, they were like, Oh, okay. And like, they looked at my Amazon page and the Goodreads reviews. And so I, I became um, m- much more official after that. So you're now Miss Popular. That's what you're telling us. Well, not really, because I don't see anyone. <laughs> like the, but you gained the fun- that street cred with your. I gained a, I gained a lot of street cred after they googled me, um, and so I was not just um, m- m- the m- mysterious mom who's who keeps missing events. So when my mother-in-law saw this book, because she was like, "Huh, Chen, that's a Chinese lady," and she was <laughs> yes, like, it is, and she was like, "That's also my last name." Um, where did you find her? <laughs> <laughs> I know I always it's always like chans of the world unite yes and I so I just jokingly told her like you never know she might be one of your nieces and nephews so we gotta find out and she was like so how do we do this (laughs) (laughs) so I'm just I'm just telling her maybe you are her distant 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 niece it's it's really possible I I think you never know you never know you never know 
So before we end this, we had so much fun with you. I hope you know that you are really, really funny. Um, and you are really, really talented. But before we close the show, we always ask this question. What is your top five books of all time? Or you can say, what five books are you most excited about that to come out this year? Oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the second choice because coming up with uh, my top five books of all time, I'm going to just make you wait for like five minutes of silence. <laughs> so because I, I have my top five books of all time, but I'm like, but which ones to mention on a podcast is a different right. question. So I have five books to tell you about that are coming out this year. Um, the, the exciting thing about asking, being asked to write blurbs is that you get to see really good books way ahead of time so um this the this one I'm going to mention is I did not blurb it but I, I read it because um she's a friend of mine who I met during the the virtual book tour world so Easy Beauty a memoir by Chloe Cooper Jones is coming out in April it's brilliant um she is uh a zillion times smarter than me and a zillion times a better writer. And I was telling her, but it's nice to admire your friends. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's, um, it's, it's just a genius book. Um, the novel Little Rabbit by Alyssa Song Siri Day is coming out in May. It's really, really, really good. And the sexiest book I've ever read. And uh, a novel called Post Traumatic by Chantal Johnson is coming out in April. Um, both of those books would be very up your alley for, for the potential, potential interviewer, interview guests. Um, other books coming out this year that I am very excited about, you know, I, I really am thrilled to be in the company of, uh, a lot of really cool authors who, um, who also debuted on January 4th. So like, I'm really excited to read Brown Girls. I'm really excited to read Fiona and Jane. I'm really excited to read Olga Dies Dreaming. Um, another book that came out just today is called uh, This Boy We Made, a memoir by Taylor Harris, which is is so good. It's It'll um, completely devastate you, but in a very meaningful way. <laughs> it's, I, I did um, an event with her last Friday and I managed not to just ask her for life advice the whole time. It, it's the kind of book you, you'll, you'll leave it feeling very invested in her family and really wanting to ask her life advice. Yeah, that cover and the, the title is beautiful and the cover is beautiful. Yeah, I definitely, that one's on, on my list to read. Um, I know we said that that was the last question about your books, but in my Oprah voice, Jessamy, what is the definition of a good mother? I would say that there is no one definition mm. and, and that it really depends on who's asking and the circumstances because I, I think there I don't think there is a universal definition and ladies and gentlemen there you have it Destiny Chan thank you so much for coming on to the show we greatly enjoyed it and we cannot wait to talk to our our book club people about your book and like we said we hope that everything that comes to you this year and the years to come are just nothing but abundance and full and wonderful and bright and shiny. 
Yeah, thank oh, you. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for making me feel seen and making me feel like I'm a normal human being. Like I told you earlier, you are the writer that my Asian American self have been waiting for so, so, so long. You are the one that made me cry the most, like in my my whole like living life. So you got that under your belt, you know, the next awards would just be like icing on the top. Oh, well, thank, thank you so much. This has all been definitely like music to my ears, like beyond dream come true. And just thank you so much for what you do. Cause this, this podcast didn't like, this is the kind of conversation that I needed when I was in my twenties. And there, there just wasn't a conversation like this when I was um, starting out and writing fiction. So I'm, I'm glad that there's now a home for for writers and artists of color because it it's sometimes a quite lonely endeavor for a long time. So the fact that that what you do is helping to build community is really exciting. Thank you so much for choosing me as your January book. That's so great. You're very welcome. Thank you. And we don't want to keep you. So you get some rest. I know I'm sure you got a full day tomorrow. If not for work, I know you got a little one that you got to tend to. So just thank you again for meeting us at up so late, but we just want to say thank you again. Thank you so much. So wonderful to meet you. We'll see you in the gram. Bye. <laughs> Take care. Bye. <laughs>